Welcome to the Renew the Arts podcast, where we discuss the role of art and creativity in the church and in the world. We're your hosts, Justice Stout and Michael Minkoff. Our mission at Renew the Arts is to liberate Christian creativity. At renewthearts.org, you can see what we're working on and see how you can get involved in the creative revival that is currently happening in the church. In the last four years, we've given away more than $200,000 in sponsorship value for projects by Christians who are dedicated to their craft and to their faith. If you like what we're doing, please support our efforts by joining our patron community and perhaps sponsoring a podcast episode. For more details, visit our website or shoot us an email. We're going to take a moment here and thank one of our sponsors. And I want to turn this into a regular thing. Um, as people start supporting podcast episodes and supporting our art projects, um, we want to give them shout outs. So this episode, uh, we're shouting out to a long-term patron of Renew the Arts, Jonathan Warner, who has been um, very generous with us and uh, we're going to call him the sponsor of this episode. Thank you, Jonathan. We love you very much. Yes, we do. What is the place where non-believers are most likely to meet Jesus? There are a lot of ways, of course, but the most common and natural avenue would be through our culture, our films, our music, our pictures, our art. This is recognized even in the Old Testament with the inclusion of the Gentile court. Because if they won't come to church, the church, in a meaningful way, must actually go to them. This episode is How Will Unbelievers Meet God? So, you mentioned this very slightly in, uh, in the teaser there about the Gentile court, that, uh, that piques my interest. Can you expand on that? Oh, you want me to expand on that? <laughs> uh, <clears throat> well, uh, yeah. In the Old Testament, um, God gave very specific directions to Israel for setting up um, the temple, uh, which included all kinds of instructions for architecture, for tapestries, for sculpture, um, for furniture, um, and uh, it's an incredible section of the Bible. Uh, some of the first, actually the first mention of people filled with the Spirit were the artisans that were commissioned, the two artisans that were commissioned um, to create the architecture and art uh, of the temple, and their names were? You're talking about the tabernacle? Yes. Bezalel and Aholiab? Exactly. So, where uh, the temple was constructed, there was included a Gentile court just outside of the temple. This was a place where um, unbelievers could gather and, at least from a slight distance, witness the religious um, practices of the Jews. And uh, but they couldn't; they didn't have access to everything. They actually, I. We assume they couldn't hear the reading of the of the scripture, but um, they could most likely hear the music coming out of the temple, and they could certainly see the architecture of the temple and the um, uh, sculptures of the cherubim, right at the front of the temple, 
And so it's a, it's a very interesting thing that God has set up where uh, instead of inserting unbelievers directly into the heart of worship, certainly at least in the Old Testament, there is rather a kind of buffer zone or secondary uh, place where Gentiles could be acquainted with the tastes and aesthetics and architecture and music and the smells and the sounds of the religion of the Jews, which is very interesting that God was so specific in setting that place up. Right. It is actually. And um, it reminds me, and we talked a little bit about this uh, earlier when we talked about uh, Psalm 48. Mm-hmm. And I'll read the end there. Psalm 48 has to do with the the kings. Now, usually when it's talking about the kings or the assembly of the kings, it's talking about the, and it is definitely in this case, talking about the kings of the Gentiles. And in the Old Testament, the Gentiles would basically be unbelievers. They were not the people of God. They right. are the, the nations, the goyim, whatever. Um, and when you Hang look on, at the what? The goyim. You can't just slide over that. What are you talking about? Well, it's still in use. That's, the that's, goyim? Yeah, goyim is still what Jews call uh, Gentiles. So it's the Hebrew word for the Gentiles. It's the Hebrew word for nations. Okay. So just so wanted he, to clarify that for the listeners who might not know that. I knew that. But for those of you who didn't know that's that. That's ridiculous. That's what Michael meant by that. Anyway. I'm glad Michael and I know that. Okay. Anyway, so <laughs> the nations that are exterior to Israel were the Gentiles, and they were unbelievers the just goyim. by the nature of everything. Yes. Mm-hmm. So by the na- by the nature of the way that God had set it up. So in Psalm 48, it's talking about how the kings of the nations assembled, um, which is not the first time in the Psalms where they do this. Apparently they were, you know, set against Israel mm-hmm. regularly. But it says that they came and when they saw Zion, when they saw Jerusalem from a distance, that fear gripped them. And I want to read the end because it's very interesting. In Psalm 48, 12, it says, walk about Zion, walk around Zion, go around her, number her towers, consider well her ramparts, go through her citadels, that you may tell the next generation that this is God, our God forever and ever, he will guide us forever. Now, it clearly does not mean that the temple or Zion, because Mount Zion would have been the temple mount, Mm -hmm. which was an impressive architectural and also military outpost right in fact it was it that even when jerusalem fell to the babylonians and the romans the last place that was conquered was the actual temple enclosure right because it was walled in and it was an impressive fortress um and was a beautiful architectural achievement um in, in in both cases and the the point of this then is that these kings are going around and looking upon the temple, the architecture of the temple, the the, the architecture that was actually delivered to Solomon or to David, uh, or to you know the others, and um, and they're actually recognizing in it the majesty and the glory of God. It's clear not that the temple itself is God, but the temple was a representation of God to the kings of the earth. It was a declaration of God. It, of was, God. it was like a, a witness. A witness yeah. to his majesty and to his glory that was recognized 
from outside because mm-hmm. that's the whole point. It's like walk around, go around. They they're not allowed in the temple. I mean that that's the thing is there there there's there was a sign on the wall of the temple, you know, like no <laughs> no going allowed basically, right? Right. Like Gentiles not allowed. And so if you're not allowed inside the temple, then how do you recognize the glory and majesty of God? How do you encounter God from outside by looking upon really the the cultural output, the artistic output of that particular civilization? And what's crazy is there were proselytes. Mm-hmm. There were converts, meaning that there were converts from the Gentile nations who became believers in God. Because of the Gentile court. Because of excess- the court of the Gentiles. Because of their accessibility to the... Uh, creative output of the, uh, Israelites, of the Israelites in in their worship, right? And I mean, it, it's, it's, David even says that we've mentioned this many times. You know, he put a new song in my mouth. Many will hear and will put their trust in God. The 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 the, the reality being that through a song, a song, this this creative output can actually be a place where people encounter God. Mm-hmm. And see him for the glory and majesty that he has and are drawn into his worship. And it's so awesome to me that God, from such an early point in scripture and in his relationship with people, set aside this space. Because he so easily could have done without it. He really could have. Like, why not, like, if you want to become a Jew, it's all or nothing. Mm -hmm. Like, just start reading the scriptures or get converted because of an interaction you have with another Jew. But he sets aside a space so that you can observe and be influenced by the creative output of the Jews uh, so that you could, you know... Yeah, I mean, even the taste and see, though. Like, taste and see that Yahweh is good. Like, even for the Jews, these things weren't just for unbelievers. I mean, even for the Jews, they needed to taste and see... Absolutely. ...that what God had said had a manifest reality. Right. And so I think it's a really important thing. I mean, it's it's obviously really important in God's economy for the drawing in of people to accommodate maybe their weakness. I mean, sure. I mean, we are weak. We we need food. We need we need the the taste, touch, smell. Et I want to be able to see something. Yeah, I want to be able to see the truth. And God gives us those 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 signs. Yeah. In order to draw us in. Now, if we reject His signs, to Him, it's the same as when we reject His word. Mm-hmm. It, you know, you don't believe me. That's, that's mm-hmm. what it boils down to. But he certainly treats the signs in that way. In that in same scripture. way. Yeah. No, he really does. Yeah. And and so, um, in fact, he, he says that through Moses. If they will not believe this sign or the words that you say, like he just says it like, you know, yeah. in Exodus 4 or whatever. It's just, it's like, these are kind of, you know, on the same, like they might reject your signs or the words the you say. Like, the signs or the words. Yeah. And so, I, I when I'm looking at that, I think it's a really important thing with the church that with an unbeliever, with the Gentiles, for instance, like the modern day Gentile, the modern day unbeliever, um, we don't even have to keep them out of the temple, out of our churches. They don't want to come. Right. I mean, there's they, not, they there's be, not a sign. There's not a sign saying don't come in. <laughs> like there's actually a sign saying everyone welcome and they don't come. So mm-hmm. they don't want to be there. In some ways, it's sort of a grace to God of, of God to say, you're not even allowed in here. Well, <laughs> oh, what's going on in there? I'm not fired. I quit. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, well, now I want to see what's going on. Right. And but um, also a thing that I don't think pe- people realize is that the Jewish people had become deeply ethnocentric in Jesus's day to a much greater degree, and they had lost sight of God's extremely welcoming uh, trajectory. 
mm-hmm. that God had a trajectory in the Old Testament that he was going to blow bless open the nations. doors and bless all the nations. That was the whole point of the contract with Israel, the covenant with Israel in the first in the first place. That's right. And so when Jesus shows up and cleanses the temple, people have this idea that he's actually going in the temple, that the money money tables, the you know, changing tables were inside yeah. the temple. They weren't. Yeah, and this is so crucial because when, yeah, exactly. When he drove them out, he was clearing out the, the, court Gentile, of the Gentile court. That's right. This place where Gentiles were able to approach Jesus, or excuse me, you know, approach the uh, religious practices of the Jews, and of course, Jesus in a sense, approach mm-hmm. God, uh, he was, yeah, he cleared out the Gentile court and and made again, and it's so funny because of what Jesus' ministry altogether was, he made a way for the Gentiles. To come to God. To come to God. So it's incredibly symbolic, um, but it also reinforces God's priority of that space. Right. And um, so anyway, there's it's an, it's an incredible testimony in scripture, uh, but it really encourages us in our work at Renew the Arts that it's a very, that um, the creative output of the church has a very important role in God's mission on earth. That's true. Yeah, and, and one of the and reasons... always has. Yeah, it always has. And one of the reasons it does is because it's one of the only ways that an unbeliever will encounter God. Right. Now, it's obvious that most unbelievers aren't going to church. Right, so we say, well, if they're not coming to church, obviously we have to go to them. Right, and there's no—I don't think anybody in the church is going to deny that—that that they're not coming into the church, so the church has to go to them. And there are cases where perhaps someone would come into the church, but for the most part, that's absolutely—that's not, going not to how happen. it's working. Yeah, yeah, generally. I mean, if that church has a really great mercy ministry, right, they might show up there. But even that in itself is a going out of the church that then draws people in. Right, um, and so. No, there's definitely this need for going out of the church. A lot of people will talk to you and say, well, you know, how that, what that looks like is door-to-door evangelism or street preaching. Mm-hmm. And I want to be really careful to make sure that everybody understands from the get-go that I think those things are really great and that they should continue. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I myself uh, think that it is a really important thing to do to personally evangelize and to bring... Uh, the scriptures and uh, the truth of the scriptures to bear to unbelievers. At the same time, I don't think most unbelievers are open to hearing those things from strangers. Or certainly presented in that way. In that way. Mm-hmm. Now, and, and you're like, well, that doesn't matter. It's still the word of God and it's, gonna, it's not going to return void. I agree with that. I really do agree with that. But at the same time, I think there is a real place, even in God's economy, as we've seen with the court of, Gen- of the Gentiles, to accommodate to the listener the truth that he has given us. Now, not to dilute it, not to distort it, not to corrupt it, but to accommodate it, mm-hmm. to contextualize it. You know, if you're going to uh, a, a, an audience that has no framework, because that's part of the problem— I have this idea of doing evangelism where I'm going to take a picture, uh, like a fake picture of Jesus, you know, Caucasian Jesus, mm-hmm. uh, with the chestnut hair and the blue eyes, and go out and, and have like a missing poster kind of thing, like, have you seen this man? And go and just ask people, like, have you seen this man? Yeah. Right? And it's like, bring it up that way, where it's like, have you? 
have you ever met this man? It's like, well, you know who this is, quote unquote, Jesus. Right. You have this conception of Jesus. But have you actually ever seen Jesus? Have you actually ever encountered Jesus? And in some ways, that picture is a false I mean, not in some ways, in every way that picture is false. That picture is not true to what Jesus looked like for one, Mm -hmm. but also the idea that people have in their heads concerning Jesus is also not correct. Mm -hmm. And so if you go up to people and you start talking about Jesus, really one of the questions is which Jesus? Which Jesus are you talking about? And so these words that you use when you're evangelizing from the scriptures, they they have to be couched, they have to be contextualized in such a way that the people know exactly what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. And you can't just use the words and assume these words are going to be effective. They're not going to be effective if people don't know what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. And the beauty of Jesus' ministry and the ministry of the Old Testament is that Jesus got beyond and behind the preconceptions of his audience. That's one of the reasons why Jesus was a traveling storyteller that he went around telling stories and people didn't know to disagree with him. If mm-hmm. he had gone if he had gone to the Pharisees and been like, "Hey Pharisees, let me tell you, let me tell you what you're at, what you're about." You know, like like more like John the Baptist approach, which, you know, no fault on John the Baptist. That was his that was his gift, that was his calling. Mm-hmm. He went and he said, "You brood of vipers, <laughs> you know, who warned you of the coming destruction?" Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a slightly different approach than 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 Jesus' approach for most of his ministry. Although Jesus did a little bit of that as well. He dabbled. And then he dabbled in it. But it, it does say that he never spoke to the people without a parable. Mm-hmm. And so you have this idea that Jesus told these stories, and like most stories, People accept the truth of them before they realize that what the, the truth is. Yes, <laughs> which right. is an incredible power of the well, arts. Exactly, because something resonates with you more deeply than the surf or than than the basic conclusion that you will eventually reach. Which is exactly something rings true about this, and if I let it simmer for long enough, the conclusion will kind of surface. That's right, and you can't deny it. Because at that point, it's you yourself that have made the conclusion. That's what Jesus said to the Pharisees. Mm-hmm. The Pharisees would be angry with Jesus. About a story he about told. About a story he told. In which he didn't even accuse them. He never accused them. But in telling a story, they associated with particular... Yeah. Uh, that would be... Which story was that that he actually called him out on? Well, he talked about he talked about the vineyard owner. Yeah. And they got really, really angry about him, about the stewards of the vineyard who had killed the messengers and then killed the son. And then even killed the son whenever the father sent him. Right. And they got really angry with him. And he said, like, Your own you? words have condemned yeah. you. Why are you angry? Right. I, I never, never even said, said that anything. was who you were. Yeah. I never said that was who you were. You recognize that. And that's one of the things about um, art in general. Uh, I think, were we talking about Isaac, to Isaac about this? But anyway, uh, a lot of times the power of art is that you see what you need to see. Because mm-hmm. a lot in that in the case with the Pharisees, they saw what they needed to see, which was that they were the bad guys. Mm-hmm. And they recognized that. And that resonate they that was true mm-hmm. that they were the bad guys, and that's what made them upset. Um, told to a different audience, for example, us. Well, it could still be true if I'm a Pharisee. That's right. And oftentimes it is true in that case. But in other times, I would, you know, the story would resonate differently with me or differently with different audiences. So it's, that's an incredibly powerful thing. That's right. And it's almost like Jesus recognized that whether it was believers or unbelievers, 
mm-hmm. right? I mean, because we're using these words specifically and purposefully because it's not really just non-Christians and Christians. There are so-called Christians who are actually unbelievers. They're living in unbelief. That's what the Pharisees would have been. They were people of God who actually did not believe God. Mm-hmm. And the, 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 the art of Jesus, the stories of Jesus, actually m- made apparent to them what they actually were so that those who did not have ears would understand that they were, you know, would be condemned in that. Right. In, in hearing it wrong. Mm-hmm. And that those who did would be, would be blessed mm-hmm. in hearing it right. Um, to know that they hadn't been manipulated, that they hadn't, their arms had not been forced, but that they had been... They, had been, they uh, reached that conclusion on their on own. On their own. They came to that conclusion. Right. And I think it's, it's, it's very interesting what, you, what you've talked about before, that, you know, non-Christians, whether you like it or not... They're going to be drawing... Well, yeah. am I jumping the gun No, here? but yeah. Yeah, so one of the crazy things about this is that we can, starting where we did with like the Court of the Gentiles and everything is interesting, but you can also start from the place of like, conclusions will be drawn about our creative output, period. It's going to happen. So what does that mean for what we do? Um, and actually, you know, not the- only are conclusions going to be made about our creative output, but they might be the only conclusions an unbeliever has concerning the church. And they might also be incredibly accurate <laughs> conclusions about us. Yeah. You know what I mean? So you have, um, what if I'm going to make up a, a you know hypothetical situation? What if you have a particular country and uh, it has a lot of Christians and all of the music that these Christians make is really kind of shallow and uh, or just or cheesy or it's kind of obvious that the the emotional bandwidth or even just the uh, the emotional intellectual and creative bandwidth is very narrow mm-hmm. a conclusion that will be drawn whether you like it or not as is would be that the christians that are making this are not creative they're not very smart and they're not very deep emotionally and whatever their uh whatever's going on in their religious services or what whatever uh it's not something that outsiders are interested in being a part of Right. I mean, an analogy would be the international reputation of America, of the United States of America. Mm. I mean, if you go to another country and, and you say, hey, I would like an American beer, they'll have an import, you know, an import. Mm-hmm. Like, I, we imported this American beer. And what will it be? Budweiser? It will be Budweiser. There you go. It will be Budweiser. And Budweiser is not a very good representation of the United States of America in in the world. I mean, in the sense that it's not a positive representation because it's not a very good beer. I mean, if you go to another country and you're drinking Budweiser, if you go to Germany and you're drinking Budweiser, shame (laughs) on you. You know what I mean? Like, shame on you because they have better beer to offer you. But over there, it's imported. It's a higher charge. It's an import. Yeah, right. Yeah. But that that does contribute to the reputation of America. It's part of our cultural output. And they look at that and they say the music that comes out of America, the movies that come out of America, the beer that comes out of America, the things that come out of America are not good. Yeah. And we do, and, and this is going to happen anytime. 
uh, even um, to a degree with uh, like if I hear a song by a non-Christian that has incredible emotional depth or uh, for example uh, Brian John Appleby mm-hmm. he did a song about he actually about Noah's Ark mm-hmm. which is a biblical obviously a biblical story Noah's Nameless Wife yeah the song Noah's Nameless Wife definitely look it up if you haven't heard it Brian John Appleby and um, he dealt with that story more honestly and truthfully than any other Christian I've ever heard tackle the story of Noah in music. And it was very impressive, and it it honestly like spoke the truth to me. Mm-hmm. It spoke the truth of the scripture of the scriptures to me in a way that had never you know it hadn't really been so clear before. And uh, that says something about Brian John Appleby. Now I don't know what his spiritual state is, but um, pretty firmly in the unbeliever category. Yeah, but it makes me wonder what's going on there. Right. And and if he's telling biblical stories better than most Christians. That's troubling. That's, you know, that's a red red flag. Yeah. And um, so, yeah, uh, even our architecture. And that's one of the things about the temple. One of the most obvious things that you're going to notice, like we read in the Psalms, is the architecture. So uh, architecture is going to say something about the congregation within, you know, that decides that this is the place of worship. Yeah, and I mean, is this manipulation? I mean, that that would be the argument is like, are you just manipulating people like the seeker friendly movement or anything like that? Are you just manipulating people into having a feel good or like it's not even necessarily feel good. We're not advocating that necessarily. You should uh, know better. <laughs> yeah, if you've listened to our music, you know that's not really what we're advocating. Um, but uh, yeah, if are you are you just trying to manipulate people into believing the truth? And I would say, I would say no. But at the same time, I also want to you know make very clear art and visual art and music and all the rest of these things can become vanity they can if if they're not joined to a spirit of submission to god then they are vanity and it's no good trying to change the art of the church when the heart of the church is no different Mm -hmm. if the but this is the other side of that coin if the heart of the church were different our art would be different too. Mm-hmm. And that's really, I think, the clarion call here from our organization and from us is check your hearts. Mm-hmm. It, because if the church's heart were in a better place, wouldn't the output of that, wouldn't the fruit of that heart be deeper, mm-hmm. more honest, more humble, more excellent? But it's a compounding investment because if you have... If there's a revival and there are more people with genuine hearts that are truly pursuing the Lord. It encourages others. And their their output is, is um, you know, beautiful and true and good, then this will influence uh, others within and without the church. Um, so it, it's, it becomes kind of a feedback loop. So, yeah, it starts with the heart. And And the opposite is also true. It's a vicious cycle. When you have mediocrity, it encourages superficiality. Yes, exactly. If you have shallow worship, even if (laughs) the person had a good heart in writing the shallow worship, there's a good chance that that shallow worship will not serve 
the church at large as well as that person would like to think that it would. And it certainly is not going to serve unbelievers. Not at all. And it hasn't. And it hasn't. And we're kind of, the church right now in America is kind of trudging through the repercussions of that. Yeah, definitely. So we should really be praying that the Lord works in our hearts and that he works in our output. And then that output encourages other hearts hearts (laughs) and creates more output. Right. Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. All right. Well, that was good. Yeah, that was great. Thanks for joining us. If you like these podcasts, we encourage you to put your money where our mouth is by sponsoring an episode. If you'd like to do that, you can reach out to me. That's justice, J-U-S-T-U-S, at renewthearts.org. Or you can contact us on our website, and we'd be happy to meet you. We're going to close this episode with a song by Brock's Folly off of their third and, for now, final album called I Have Seen the End. This is a song called People Change. I hope it's edifying. You're gonna do whatever suits yeah. But soup kitchens are the churches of the future. What they'll try to tell you What's that boy? What's that? But the Jesus movement is alive and well, y'all And brother, don't you know God don't abhor ya Spirit is here and he's coming for ya and shakers Why's that boy? Tell me why Cause the Holy Spirit He'll move and shake us Church is big And the church is first money keeper What he do boy tell me what he did Sold his soul for 30 pieces of silver 